What's good, party people? This is According to Woods, and I have the honor and privilege of having back the inventor of the NWO, a former WCW president. He is a former executive producer for Impact Wrestling. He's been everywhere, and even an AWA announcer, and I don't think AWA gets enough love, but he's the one, the only, Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on? I am having just a perfect day, man. Just a perfect day. Grateful to be alive. Grateful to be alive. I love it. I love it. And this is a kind of a somber day for me. And it has been since uh, 2013 because my mom actually passed away. This is her anniversary. And uh, I promise you kind of off air a fun little WCW story about my mom. Um, and, and here I will go and I'll lead with this. Um, there was a WCW house show at the Forum in Inglewood, uh, where my mom was actually working at City Hall in, you know, in the mayor's office. And uh, she saw that and saw my joy to want to go, but we didn't have enough money. So my mom actually put a bit of her rent check uh, late so we can purchase tickets for myself, my sister, and one of my friends to go and that friend actually hit me up and what have you so on the anniversary of her passing to have you on it's uh it's a great honor wow i first of all thank you for sharing that and it never ceases to amaze me no matter how many people i talk to or <clears throat> what i do where i go when i'm in a wrestling kind of environment live shows comic cons that kind of stuff um how many people have such strong memories regarding their family, sometimes friends, that all kind of evolved around wrestling. It's a very, uh, I don't know, it brings people together, as weird as that sounds, because it's basically men and women beating the hell out of each other <laughs> in a fictional environment. But, I mean, that's a little different. But the fact that so many families are attracted to it, I've heard so many stories about, you know, people that are, in your 40s and 50s who, you know, I you know, I used to watch wrestling with my dad or my mom used to love wrestling. Or in my case, you know, my grandmother's what who turned me on to professional wrestling when I lived in, in Detroit when I was about six or eight years old. Yeah, her name was Agnes. So Grandma Aggie, which is probably why she was so mean because she was born. It's kind of like the boy named Sue kind of thing, only for a woman. Mm -hmm. But her name was Agnes. And, uh, she was kind of cranky. That's a good way of saying it. There you go, Grandma. Um, but that's the one thing that, you know, when she was around, when she lived with us, because she lived with us like half the year, then she'd go live with my uncle for half a year, and then she'd come back. Uh, but when she was in our house, man, that's the only thing my grandmother and I did together, is <laughs> watch wrestling. So thank you for sharing that. It's just grateful. Thank you. Well, uh, my condolences on, on – uh... Granny Agnes um, and her yeah. passing, uh, but that's that's cool that you also have that. And also, my mom um, was like, "You, Eric Bischoff, is easy on the eyes." So that's one thing <laughs> that I actually was a WCW guy during the Monday Night Wars because you were on the TV rather than the other show. So there's that. Well, that's very cool. And I just that's another thing I've been noticing now for a long time is I'm really over with people's mothers. Now, that's probably always been the case to a degree, just being honest about it, you know, because, I mean, look at me, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> pretty much. But, but what I've really noticed 
is now I'm meeting people that are in their 40s or 50s saying, oh, my mom really digs you. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, pretty soon I'm going to have my own version of the golden guys. <laughs> hey, you know hey what? that's a good idea, actually. I'm just the golden saying. guys. I think so. <laughs> Ex-wrestlers and wrestling people, you know, have three of them living together in an old folks home and see what happens. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, now there's a there's a Vartan Ganya troupe and how that I happened. know. Yeah, as so, I was saying it, I was hoping nobody would pick up on that, but yeah, uh, I knew you would. I should have yeah. I'm the AW guy. <laughs> you just <laughs> proved it beyond any shadow of doubt. <laughs> Now, Mick Mac, uh, yes, he says, I thought Eric was cool until he buried cheese and pineapple. Look, I, I mean, evidently we've created something here, and it was probably Mick Mac that started it all because he is the consummate shit disturber. And here I'm watching on my social media. I mean, there are people taking this shit really, like, seriously. Mm -hmm. It's like I told them they had an ugly child or something. Yeah, People are getting pissed, but I'm not moving. I'm not moving on this. You know, there was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who, through his teachings, many people believe that the, the key to, to quality in life and in everything you do isn't necessarily quantity. It's the quality. And in the case of a good hamburger, if you've got a great ground beef product, not that horse shit that you get on sale at some big box retailer. I'm talking about really good quality ground beef. And by the way, if you hear somebody say, oh, that's corn fed. Corn fed is not good quality ground beef. Cows were not built to consume corn. True. They were born, they were created to consume grasses, mm -hmm. not corn. Mm -hmm. And all that sugar in that corn, sure, it makes them fat, but it doesn't make them good. So there's a little education on ground beef, McMack. Now, when you find a good quality, and I prefer organically grown grass-fed beef, because then at least I know what I'm not getting, right? And no hormones, no steroids, no that crap. I don't do that. But you get a good cut of meat mm -hmm. off a cow like that, and you season it properly, you put it on a grill, and you cook it properly, you don't need to hide the flavor or the lack thereof by just piling a bunch of shit on it that isn't supposed to be there. That's why they do that. They do it to make it look bigger because most people go, oh, I'm really hungry. I want to eat whatever is the biggest, not the best, yeah. the biggest, right? So you get these grocery people that serve hamburgers and they're giving you the lousiest, just if you really knew what it was, you wouldn't, you wouldn't eat it. But, and they know it tastes like shit or doesn't have any flavor, is more appropriate. So what do they do to give it flavor? They dump a bunch of shit on it and you think you're getting a better deal because it's bigger. That's why people eat cheese and shit on their hamburgers. Because they're so used to it, they know a little difference. Oh, I mean... Uh, you're not wrong, though. And uh, sorry, vegans. Of course, and, I'm not wrong. No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And I, you know, I'm in California, Southern California, where make. I mean, Disney. You go to Disneyland, buy a hamburger, and that shit has never been actual beef. And it has. I mean, 
for 25 years at the very least. So I'm just saying, but it's big as shit. You can Instagram it and whatever, but like, again, hopefully it justifies the fucking $30 price tag uh, along with it. Here's another thing. You know, when you go into a McDonald's or you go into any, anywhere that serves burgers, right? You get your hamburger and in the, in your, in the palms of your hands, piled underneath or underneath piles of tomatoes that don't taste like tomatoes and lettuce that tastes like lettuce because it doesn't have a flavor, it just has a right. texture, right? You're, you're looking at a hamburger patty that is probably the result of over a hundred different cows because when this stuff is processed the way it's processed, I encourage everybody to watch a documentary called Food Matters, mm-hmm. okay? You'll learn a thing or two. I did. But you're looking at a piece of meat that it's come from probably, it's all assimilated from, from over 100 cows. Who the fuck wants to eat that? You're going to tell me one of those cows just isn't nasty? Maybe five? So you got 5% of nasty cow in your burger. Mm-hmm. I don't want no nasty cow. No. We don't want no nasty cow in here. No. Nasty cow. <laughs> and, and Coach <laughs> Coach Rob says Coach Rob approved. He approves of everything that you said about burger, uh, you know, and, and meat consumption in general. So you know, and, and by the way, I think we are the silent meat eaters. We're the silent burger lovers. Those of us who are willing to speak out against the tyranny that's been imposed upon us by big box grocery stores and fast food restaurants into thinking that just because it's fucking big and it has shit that looks like vegetables on it, that it actually tastes good, right? As a, and now that I've spoken out vociferously, both on streaming platforms and digitally, all of a sudden, out of the woodwork comes all these people who agree with us, like Rob. It's empowering. Damn it. I love this. <laughs> oh, this is it. We're 10 minutes in. We didn't even talk anything about wrestling. Again, this is what you bring to the table. Um, I'm sorry to get you all fired up, but I mean, this is this is gold. This is absolute gold. And uh, Rocky Nelson says, I grew up watching Don Owens Portland uh, territory and then AWA. And then I found out there was more. That's an awesome kind of a. Uh, you know, introduction to pro wrestling, Don Owens and then AWA. Good job, Rocky. So let me ask you, let me ask you. I remember when I first, when when it hit me in the face that wrestling isn't real. Like I always kind of went, I mean, I, even as a little kid, I I lived in a neighborhood where you fought three times a day. Mm Mm-hmm. I got beat up on my way to school. I got a beat up at lunch when Bob Cayleese and Paul Donahue would find me in a bathroom and take the 35 cents my mother gave me that morning. And then I get beat up on my way home. So I know what it looks like to be in a in, in combat. Even as a young kid, I knew because I did it three times a day. And then I'd watch these big guys in the ring and I'm going, huh, that don't make no sense to me. <laughs> growing up as a kid in Detroit, I got beat up three times a day. But, uh, that wouldn't, uh, I'm not buying that. So I always had that kind of subliminal thing going in my head, even as an eight-year-old, right? But when it kicked me in the head like a horse was when I moved from Detroit to Pittsburgh. Mm. And then all of a sudden, 
Dick the Bruiser or whoever it was, the world heavyweight champion at the time in Detroit. Now, this is before cable for those of you who are in your teens and 20s and even 30s. All of a sudden, I moved to Detroit. I moved to Pittsburgh. I know I've got another world heavyweight champion. Who's this Bruno San Martino cat? How could he be the world heavyweight champion when this guy's a world heavyweight champion? That's when it, that's when I went, huh. I didn't think I didn't think to myself, well, this is a work, but putting it into the context of this conversation, I was like 10, 12 years old. I went, huh, this is a fucking work. In my head. Mm -hmm. In my head, I said. I didn't want Grandma Aggie to beat my ass because I ruined it for her. <laughs> I kept it quiet. I can't fave Grandma Aggie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'll give you a kayfabe response. Uh, I, I guess the kayfabe response would be, it's still real to me, damn it. There you right? go. <laughs> right? Uh, but actually, Harley Race is kind of there because, the, the you know, it's still real to me, damn it. Back in 2011, right after my dad had passed away, I went to Wrestle Reunion at the LAX uh, Sheridan or Marriott or what have you, mm -hmm. and Harley raced in a wheelchair. So I'm like, you can't fake that, right? But also, Harley was on this Fox show when they had the masked magician that was, you know, telling all of the magician secret, Avery Copperfield and all that, whatever. But allegedly, supposedly, Harley was the booker of the uh pro wrestling isn't real fox incarnation show so harley race is both my kayfabe and my shoot response to that that's that's what i knew very cool and you know i just wanted that'd be a good topic for a conversation at a top guy weekend or something it's like you know what was it that finally puts you over the top you know because we I think as kids we all that we're watching wrestling as kids we're probably all in that phase where well, I don't really think, yeah, maybe, but wow, that was, well, these two guys really hate each other, right? We got sucked in. Mm -hmm. And as kids, and each one of us, I'm sure, had that moment and you could feel it creeping up on you when you went, huh, I don't know. It would be fun to have that conversation in a group of people and see how many, you know, came to that reality and, and, and at what ages or stages of their fandom. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a certain mortgage guy in Alabama that might be, I mean, create an entire dialogue on just that. And uh, that would be for Top Guy Weekend. So, again, uh, Top Guys, you know where it is. You know where it is. I like that. Actually, kidding. that makes you steal our own idea here and use that for the subject of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Let's do it. When did you know it's not real? But also, I'm of a generation of Power Rangers and, you know, guys on the street that were like, uh, I don't know if you've seen them, like the McDojo on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. The guys with the one touch and guys that throw, you know, flying 30 feet and whatever the fuck. So I'm like, that's also why I didn't get into martial arts because I was like, oh, they're all fucking fake. But, you know, wrestling, that's real. You, you know, because I, I, I spent a lot of time in the martial arts and I still peripherally, you know, track it a little bit. I've, I've actually learned to really love looking at judo video. I mean, judo is a fascinating art. Yeah. You know, I was never drawn to it, you know, back when I was really interested in, even before I actually got into martial arts, I had had a long interest in it, you know, wanting to do it. It was aspirational for me, uh, but I was never drawn to judo for whatever reason. And just now after watching it, I think I started watching it at the Olympics, actually, uh, this past one, I was like, this is really interesting stuff. I guess I was never attracted to it as a martial art because from a practical point of view, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I don't know if I'd want to rely on that. I'd like to know it, but I, if yeah. you only have, if you only got one go-to, I wouldn't have picked you though, right? 
Yeah. For me, it would have either been boxing or 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 kickback karate. Well, but for now, okay. now I'm watching it, it's like I'm fascinated. I love watching it. No, 100%. Well, for me, that was the closest thing as a, you know, what, six or seven-year-old kid to pro wrestling, right? So right. to me, you know, strapping on the gi and the whole deal and the bowing and the uchimagas and whatever the fuck and whatever, that was the closest thing to wrestling. That was what I got at my local community center and grappling, right? Uh, but all it took for me to kind of get away from it was actually uh, my mom doing her hair. Uh, shout out to mom. Uh, and I was there late, so I didn't get to stretch. And I get dumped on my head. And I was like, fuck this. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Which, funny enough, like, uh, I think 30 years later, almost 30 years later, um, I end up at a MMA gym. And the coach wants to start going, you know, like, judo takedowns before you get to the ground and submit, right? Well, I have a friend, uh, Francis Bolin, and that dude is like a six-dan, black belt, whatever, and much taller than I, and all he would do is just like throw me, again, on my head until like I piss myself, so shout out to you, Francis. <laughs> shout out to you. <laughs> and uh, it's like, me, Eric Bischoff? Absolutely. Techno notice. I'm just saying that is him, and he actually oh, says, no. "Yeah, he says uh, according to Woods, you got a great Eric Bischoff look like." Almost had me fooled. Are, <laughs> are, are, are you the real Eric Bischoff? Um, the, well, I was going to say I'm the only one I know, but that's not true because there's a fireman that's living in New York somewhere with my name that I'm sure has to bear the brunt of that burden every single day. <laughs> <laughs> Some kids are like literally on the bike with NWO shirts. We're like, too sweet, too sweet. <laughs> That's it. Ah, shout out to you, uh, Bischoff in upstate New York. I'm just saying. Um, let's see. And uh, Rob says, uh, I met Dick the Bruiser and Killer Kowalski as a kid uh, in Detroit, and that made me a fan. Uh, did, did you kind of uh, watch any of the Dick the Bruiser or Killer Kowalski? Obviously, Killer Kowalski and his training of China and Triple H and a litany of other Perry Saturn uh, is a Hall of Famer. But, I mean, mm -hmm. any memories or interactions with either one dick the bruiser yeah killer kowalski i don't remember i would imagine that killer kowalski went through the detroit territory at some point i would think so um but i don't remember him. but dick the bruiser absolutely dick the bruiser you know was kind of like he was the awa version of the crusher in detroit mm -hmm. right so and i think you know eventually throughout the midwest and i, I think they probably tagged together Competed against each other, whatever it was, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, Dick the Bruiser definitely the Sheik, the original Sheik definitely. Um, those are the two that I remember the most. No, hundred um, percent. And it's funny, I believe, and I'm sure George Ramosi will like throw me over coals if I get this wrong. But I want to say that Killer Kowalski was actually in one of the slumberies. Um, I can't remember which, but. I want to say that was the first time that I even heard the name of Killer Kowalski. That could possibly be. I don't remember everybody that were that was there. I think that was in 1993, and I really wasn't. I was still more of an announcer. That might even been before I was made executive producer. I'm not sure, but I, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I think you are. See, I made George Ramosa proud. Yes, yes. He, he's like walking, talking encyclopedia. <laughs> Yeah, slash prosecuting attorney as you're sitting on this. I want to know. I want to know. Dude, what, what did I? 
do I have an attorney here? <laughs> is there somebody that, I don't know, even watches a little bit of, you know, law stuff on TV? Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah. I'm getting grilled here and I need some help. Absolutely. <laughs> you need to hot tag somebody for sure. Uh, Jason Nicole of Bodyslam.net, where this is actually slim streaming as well, says Americans take their pizza and burgers seriously. 100%. Do, do you agree? Jishel, I not only agree, I may get another tattoo somewhere. Pizzas and burgers and with over an American flag. Ooh. I can Ooh. see the t-shirt now. Jishel, we could get rich. Yes. There you go. I'm just saying. So there's a, there's a what is it? It's going to be the top seller next to Box of Gimmicks and uh, all of the stuff that the, the, the mortgage guy he creates, right? Yeah. You know what's interesting about pizzas, too, is and, – and, I'm sure burgers as well, but there's pizza is probably and pizza didn't really exist in this country until the early fifties. Right. And even then it was mostly on the East coast because of Italian families, you know, coming into the East coast and settling into New York and up and down the, the Eastern seaboard there. So there's just historically always been really, really great pizza on the East coast, but it's got its own unique style. Right. A New York pizza is going to be different than the Chicago. Chicago's got great pizza, but it's completely different than what you would find in New York. Mm -hmm. So I think what we love in a pizza has a lot more to do with where we grew up than anything else. You know, I, you know when I lived in Minnesota, the pizzas there, you go out for a pizza, and they just, they were so bland because people, in my experience, I know I'm generalizing, but it's my experience, generally don't like a lot of really spicy food. Mm. It's kind of a northern midwestern thing because a lot of that culture were, were Norwegians and Germans and right. and people from Britain that all kind of tended to move into that part of the country faster because of logging and all the things that were kind of inherent with what they did for a living before they moved here from wherever they moved here from. But food there is kind of bland. So the pizza was a good quality pizza, but it just didn't have the same fullness of flavor in the sauces in particular you know like i like you know spiced italian sausage spicier the better because i like that robust assault yeah. on my taste buds people in minnesota don't like that yeah. so i think a lot of our passion for pizza and probably to a lesser degree burgers says a lot more about where we grew up loving pizza than anything I agree. I agree. But, you know, in terms of like the Norwegians liking bland stuff, don't they have like there's a salted fish or something? It's that... called lunafisk. It is like, yeah, horrible. rancid. It is horrible. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I had this friend in college named Bob Grinberg, G R O E N V E R G. Okay. okay. All right. Swedish, Norwegian family. <clears throat> very Swedish Norwegian family. Mm -hmm. And I think we were freshmen in college or sophomores, sophomores in college. And we said, Hey, let's go deer hunting together. He said, yeah, my family owns a farm way up in Northern Minnesota, like way up in Northern Minnesota. You could throw a Frisbee if the wind was blowing from the South in Minnesota and it could land in Canada. That's how far North they were. Wow. So I got all excited. They lived at an old farmhouse, you know, really traditional, you know, Swedes, right? food, the meatballs, all the stuff they made, because the night before opening a deer is like a big night, right, for people that do that stuff. Mm -hmm. So traditional old farm style, Swedish style, you know, dinner. And then I, they started cooking lutefisk for the next day. 
And I, I never heard of a lutefisk before. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I'd be outside with fresh air. It's kind of cold and crisp. And then you walk in the house, it's like somebody's cooking garbage. Somebody set a dumpster on fire in here. This is horrible. What the hell? And all the, all the, you know, the older Swedes and, you know, some, a couple of them, the older ones came over on a boat. So this is like, you know, pretty first quarter of the generational kind of culture. And they're all excited about eating this fish. So I, I didn't want to be rude, right? I had to pretend I was excited. Ooh, that was hard. And I sat down and, and I, I choked some of it down and I just don't get it, man. I do not get lutefisk. It is yeah. horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, regionals, right? I mean, especially when you get into international, like uh, uh, Fiji, we have uh, we have kava, which is, uh, you know, it's a ceremonial drink and it tastes like it has the effect on your tongue of like a thousand, you know, consuming a thousand pineapples one after the other without the sweet. Uh, but also you might see the devil like that's that's what, that's the way we get that. But, uh, you know, it's my wife, it's yeah, ab <laughs> yes, absolutely. I try that. I try yes. that. All right, that devil, I'll whip his ass. <laughs> That's something I want to book. I'm just saying, I, maybe I can commentate. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Um, yes, and then uh, McMack says people wanted to cancel Eric Bischoff and said that he was anti American. Nope, that's not the truth. So McMack is taking uh credit for it. He says, You're welcome, everyone. Well, You're okay, Mick, there, there, there goes shit, shit disturbing McMack. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, we all know you live uh, for Shawn Michaels' super kick. <laughs> you know, Rocky, you know better than that. Come on. I'm just saying. And, uh, no more corned beef? I actually love corned beef. So, ooh, ooh, ooh. We, we got some fighting words, Alan Roque, but with your fight stance, I'm not, you know, I'm going to be like people on Twitter. I'm going to talk shit on the internet and I won't say it to your face. I wouldn't either at this stage of my life, but if you would have caught me 20 years ago, we would have done it just for the hell of it and gone out for a beer. Maybe 30 years ago. <laughs> but but I, I like corned beef as well. I don't eat it very often. It's kind of a specialty for me. But I, yeah, I, 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 I like corned beef, man. You yeah. give me a good corned beef sandwich with the right stuff in it. Mm, baby. Yeah, I'm just saying. And uh, this explains a lot, but uh, McMack says he loves fresh kangaroo meat, which says everything. You ruined my I childhood. I, I've had it, and it's. I I agree. I, I mean, I couldn't eat one. I, I, well, I tried it when I was in Australia. Both my wife and I did, Mrs. B, and we both were. Oh, it's actually pretty good, but I'm never going to eat it again because I can't get the image of a kangaroo out of my head. Yeah. Yeah. No, in Australia, they're considered rodents, really. Yeah. They're everywhere, right? Or they used to be. So people in Australia have a different view of them than people here in the U.S. or North America where we don't see them. The only time we see them is in movies and commercials and, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a kind of um, animated human way. Yeah. Kanga, Winnie the Pooh, just saying. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like, you know, someone here eating a dog which yeah. people do yeah. but it's like it's like who does that but to each their own to each their own um and uh <laughs> says, next you'll say uh cheese doesn't go with vegemite nothing goes with vegemite 
my mom's from a British Commonwealth. Nothing goes, that shit is like, do you remember, Eric, uh, I Love Lucy and the- Sure. Right. You remember the Vita Vita Vegemin? Yes, absolutely. But you remember the Vita Vita Vegemin commercial that she did, right? Yeah. Okay. So Vegemite is that, but in solid form without the alcohol. Because, you know, Lucy was able to get sauced on Vita Vita Vegemin. You, I mean, you just one scoop of uh, Vegemite, it's like licking a fucking rock. So, I mean, as a Commonwealther, fuck Vegemite, eh? Well, you, and you know what, Mick uh, next time I go to Australia, and hopefully it'll be soon. I, I don't know when Australia is ever going to open up uh, for foreign visitors, but um, I'll go, I'll give that a try because you know I've been to Australia three, four, five times, and I, four times I think, and I've never tried Vegemite. And typically, when I go to another country, that's the first thing I do is seek out something that's unique to that particular culture or that part of the world, because who wouldn't want to do that? I don't get that. That's the first thing that I do. And usually the more unique is, the, the more I'm drawn to it. But for whatever reason, I never touched a Vegemite sandwich. Oh. I always think of that song. Who's that? There was a Vegemite set. The men yeah. at work. Land down under. Come on. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I didn't even know what a Vegemite sandwich was until that song came up. Wow. That's, that's something. If you want to get a bunch of Islanders, if you got a bunch of Islanders in a room and you want to break bread, you put on that fucking song. You was, <laughs> yeah, it's that's it. It unites us no matter Tongan, Samoan, Fiji, and you know, uh, Solomon Islands doesn't matter. You will be over like Rover if you put on that song. Ah, you so <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, ask him what color socks he's wearing and ask him if it was a difficult choice of the, of the socks that you chose to wear today. Uh, was it difficult? Are you wearing socks when Eric Bischoff? First of all, I'm wearing socks. I cannot, I don't care how hot it is outside. I don't care what I'm doing. The only time I don't wear socks is when I'm in the shower or if I'm in the if I'm on a beach somewhere. I cannot stand walking around without socks on. Yeah. It's it's a weird thing that I have. I see people do it all the time. I just, I see guys walk around wearing thongs. Are they tongs or thongs? The things that go on your feet, not on your ass. Oh, flip-flops. Yeah, yeah. Flip-flops, yeah. Yeah. And Things that go on your feet, not on your ass. <laughs> I, I can't. I've tried it, and I just it drives me nuts. So, a, I'm wearing socks, and they're almost always black socks. Almost yeah, always, unless I'm working out. Yeah. Uh, I, I've you now I've got a couple pairs of color, you know, dress socks in my drawer, left over from Connecticut. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I have something that would go with my suits, right? So I got some wacky looking shit because colors and patterns and shit that looks actually like holiday socks um, are kind of like in right now. So I got a bunch of those in there. Not a bunch, but some. But I would say 90% of my sock inventory is black. Wow. Okay. Johnny they're Cash. Not dress socks. They're not, I hate dress socks because yeah. it's really close to not wearing any socks at all. At all. <clears throat> I do not like that. It's almost like nylon. I don't want to be able to read the logo on the inside of my soles of my feet, mm -hmm. right? So I, I have a thicker, heavier black sock that I wear primarily. Absolutely, especially with a, uh, I mean, Jesus, a Wyoming winter. I, I mean, you have to have something thick on your feet because uh, those, as those, those turn into wool socks right around November. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of Wyoming, I actually attribute you 
uh, moving there first as the reason why, and the sole reason why uh, Kanye West moved to Wyoming, uh, Stone's Throw Away From You. So uh, thank you or not for that? No, you know, Kanye's kind of left town. Oh. He, yeah, he bought up a bunch of property, started, you know, build, I'm building on commercial property here in town. And I think when the divorce went down or on its way, mm-hmm. uh, Kanye, he goes by Ye now, right? Yeah, I think so. And I, since I, we I, used to live in the same zip code, it's certainly cool with him if I call him Ye, like we're buddies, right? But yeah, Ye picked up all his shit. He put his, he had a ranch called the Monster Lake Ranch. It had two really nice trout fishing lakes on it. Beautiful, beautiful piece of property. He paid $14 million for it and then dumped probably another five into it. Maybe not that much, about three and a half into it. And then when the divorce hit, he was like, sell it. And now it's up for sale for $11 million bucks. Yeah. Um, he just sold, you may have seen it on TMZ this week. He had a whole fleet of Ford F-150 Raptors. That yeah, yeah. The staff on his property and a lot of the people that were running his business and all that. I don't know how many, eight or ten of them. And he found a local Ford dealership here in town to uh, oversee an auction. And he auctioned all of them off. I think his was a 2018 that he sold for $90,000, which is about 50% more than it's worth. But hey, good for him. But he's selling all of his shit. He's no longer a neighbor. I was really disappointed to hear that. Oh, man. Oh, man. And you know um, what's cool? So are the people here in Cody, because I know people have perceptions, right? Everybody has a perception of what other people are like or what other areas of the country are like. And when Kanye decided it it made news, right, everybody here was excited. There's not a lot of minorities in this town. That's true. But they were all excited. And what made it even cooler is when Kanye came to town, Again, some people have this perception of what he would be like. Mm-hmm. It's the exact opposite. He would come in, sit down at the same restaurant everybody else goes to, didn't have it sectioned off, didn't bring his security or his entourage in, didn't expect any kind of different service. He was very polite, very cordial, and very respectful. And it's like this town fell in love with him. Wow. Which is something that people wouldn't guess when you when I you know, because people get it, like I said, they have perceptions. Mm-hmm. But it was, the, the town was really sorry to see him go. You know, he came to town, he had a, a religious service at the museum. Right. It was hugely, hugely attended. Um, and he just, man, he just ingratiated himself or it became ingrained in the community really quickly. So it was just about six months ago that we heard he was going to go in a different direction. So now everything's up for sale. <clears throat> so we got $11 million <clears throat> laying around. I know what we can do a good deal on Kanye's ranch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you need a mortgage guy, again, I, I think yeah, we, we're the whole deal. We're the complete package. <laughs> yes. Uh, not Lex Luger total package, but you know, I'm just saying, well, you know, and uh, Marie shadows of the squared circle podcast. Uh, Says I make a bison burgers. Uh, do do you dig the bison burgers? I do. Uh, I, I do, I do. Now there's two classes of bison burgers, right? There is the well, there's wild bison, which is a little tough to come by, possible, but not easy. You can't buy it over the counter because the only way you can take a wild buffalo is to 
hunt it mm -hmm. and it's illegal to sell meat that you've hunted so right. there you go on that but you know you have range-fed bison and then you have bison that are basically raised much like cattle are raised they're not in the wild they're not eating what they normally eat they're eating foods that's designed to make them fatter faster and it's still better than beef because it's naturally leaner it's a leaner richer denser meat right like if you ate a bison steak, you would know you're eating something that's different, but you couldn't quite put your finger on the flavor, but you would really notice the texture. It's just a richer, fuller texture. Um, but I love bison either way. I've, I've never harvested one myself, but I have purchased it that's raised in its own environment and grazes, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And it's fantastic. And I mean, bison roam free in Wyoming, don't they? Yeah, there are wild bison here. Um, there's a ton of them down towards Jackson Hole. I live, I live on the east entrance of the Yellowstone National Park. Jackson Hole is on the south entrance, or in the south entrance. Um, we get them here. Like if you if you were here this weekend, we could get them my truck. Probably not yet because it's not quite cold enough. But in another month or so. Once the snow starts really getting heavy in the Yellowstone National Park, then the elk move down, or excuse me, the buffalo and the elk uh, move down closer to the lower areas because there's more food available to them. And they step, those same bison that are in the park, you know, nine months out of the year are now wandering down the highway. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of lot of wild buffalo here. Oh, uh, break. Uh, what is it? Make me a home with a buffalo room? Isn't that what you and Mrs. B did? Yeah, kind of sort of, right? Right on. Good deal. And uh, yep, Alan Roque says uh, this guy's cool as hell. Uh, yeah, right. You're cool. I think you're cool. The same. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, Rocky Nelson says impossible whopper. What does that mean, impossible whopper? Have you had an impossible burger? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> After listening to me go on and on and on about burgers, why would anybody think that I would? I, I, a fast food burger to me is just the nastiest thing. I'd go hungry for three days before I eat a fast food burger. Yeah. Just, oh, oh. No, yeah. couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, home of the slopper. There you go from Coach Rob. And uh, uh, Andrew Pacina says, I'm a fucking spitting fire uh, to use like a <laughs> Kanye West ass uh, terminology, but grass feed beef for life. For, Absolutely. For life. There we go. Right. Um, now, and uh, <laughs> yes, and we, we did go with the socks. And uh, what happened to with Matt Rats? Yes, I want to hear this. You know, I, I don't really know. And, and people have. For ever since I showed up there, you know, one night and decided to check it out, that turned into I'm an investor, I'm this, I'm that, I'm involved, I'm the booker, whatever. And none of that was even remotely close to the truth. There was a group out of um, Calgary. Right. The guy's name, there were two guys. I only remember one of them's first name was Graham. It might have been Graham Kent. I don't know. I don't think it was Graham Kent. But anyway, his name was Graham. And he called me up uh, and said, hey, you know, got this thing going on. It's really like professional wrestling, but it's really targeted towards 
preteens and teens. It was a much younger. Imagine if MTV produced a professional wrestling show, a good one. What would that look like? Right. And I said, well, that's an actually very interesting idea. Very interesting. So he flew me up to take a look at it. And of course, being a good promoter slash TV producer, he made sure that pictures of me and video of me and my then partner, Jason Hurley, made the rounds because he wanted people to think he was taking the next big step. And somehow that, you know, the narrative on that became, I became a big part of it, but I wasn't. I stayed in touch with Graham. I think he tried really hard to get that project off the ground. And I did like the project at all. That's the yeah. first time I met Harry Smith. Yes. It was at Mad Rats when he was like 12 or 14, mm -hmm. whatever he was. Um, but eventually it just, uh, it never got any traction. I'm not sure I know why, but, uh, it was a cool idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was the first time a lot of us heard of the heart kids. I mean, that weren't in the business, the general consensus of people that were wrestling fans, uh, you know, heard of a natty, uh, you know, uh, what a Teddy Hart, you know, uh, Tyson kid, you know, all yeah. of those guys and, and gal. Uh, was through Matt Rat, so that was my first introduction. I was like, "Oh my God, there's Heart Wrestling Kids!" As much as I love the Hearts already, I mean, my son's name is Owen, right? And I was like, "Oh, and they've got kids! Awesome!" Like, and then it just fizzled. Actually, you know, now that we're talking about this, because this is something I've, I fairly rarely even comes up in conversation, but thinking back on it now, as I described to you when I went to that event, you know, that it was kind of a showcase, right? They were trying to they were trying to get me involved. Right. So it was like, here's what we got. Here's the product because they didn't have a television pilot or anything at the time. And uh, thinking back on it now, had the people at Mad Rats had enough funding, because like everything, that's the, that was their biggest challenge. The concept was really, really viable. Nobody was doing anything like it. And the wrestling style that I saw was probably much more like the, style that you see today than the style of wrestling that you would see in the early 90s, mid-90s, even late 90s. It was faster paced. It had a lucha vibe to it in, in terms of the athleticism and the pace, um, the way it was being presented. Mm -hmm. That was, what, 25 years ago? 20 yeah. years ago? So I think had they had the funding and, it, and the right partners, I wasn't the right partner for that project, um, that thing should have gone. I wish I, I wish uh, you know Fusion Media would have uh, took a hold of Matt Rats. You know, you could you could probably buy it today for about forty bucks in a case of beer. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. I mean, I'm just saying that might be a, a nice little investment to make. Uh, and uh, uh oh, uh, Eddie Torres just uh, just hearts just about and uh, Bodyslam.net. Uh, Cassidy Haynes says uh, I got drunk with it. It's still real to me. Damn it, Dave! Last week at WrestleCade. So is it's still re real to me? Damn it, Dave! Kind of. I a, think his first name is that. Dave. Yeah, I think it's his first name is Dave for sure. But in terms of uh, what he's known for, it's still real to me. Damn it! I, I can make a gif of that and send it to my friends. That's yeah. No, it's real to me too. It's just real in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually have a question now in terms of the women's revolution. 
right? Um, that gets a lot of love and as well it should be, you know, females wrestling. But I almost want to say with the emergence of obviously one of uh, some, a, a person that you love so dearly in Becky Lynch, but even the indies where you've got uh, um, Renegade Wrestling out in Scotland, Glow, Shine, Shimmer, you, much like the Cruiserweights, were the first to kind of realistically feature women's wrestling with uh, obviously Medusa, uh, Akira Hokuto, uh, what's it? Jesus, Bull Nakano. Uh, so, what do you, th I mean, do you think that you're getting left off of one of the pioneers for featuring women's wrestling on a national and international front? Do you think you kind of get left off in terms of your inclusion? I really don't. I, I don't feel that way about it. I mean, yeah, I, you know, we brought in some of the high-profile Japanese talent because of the relationship that we had with New Japan and, you know, my desire to give our show a more international, kind of broader vibe than just typical, you know, wrestling the way we saw it in the 70s and the 80s and early 90s. I wanted it to feel different. I wanted to educate the world that, hey, you know, wrestling's not only cool here, but guess what? It's so popular that it's popular here and it's popular there. And the way you do that is by bringing that talent in. But, you know, I think my intentions were really, really good and they were big. But the truth is, I didn't really execute on it that much. Part of that had to do with just the availability of women at that time who were good enough to be a part of a national television show. You know, you, and there weren't a lot. There were some, right. but not a lot. You know, It wasn't until really the WWE transitioned out of the diva arm candy, you know, dog and collar panty matches and shit like that. Once the WWE got out of that way of presenting women as a part of the cast of the show and started developing and seeking out really, you know, top level women performers. That's when it really started to happen, in my opinion. The rest of us just, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but not enough of a big commitment. Not that it was because we didn't want to, but there just wasn't the talent available to really support it 365 days a year. WWE created that mm -hmm. by starting to showcase women in a more traditional presentation inside of the ring as opposed to arm candy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's who deserves that, really. I like it. I like it. That's a pretty judicious answer. I, I'm with it. Um, which, I, I guess, uh, Cassidy Haynes says, uh, I want to hear more about Bischoff busting Sting's balls for his hands. Uh, he was actually running the camera for Sean Ross Sapp's interview with Eric in Jacksonville for Don't... Okay. Over. Right. So, you busting... Sting's balls for his tans. Why well, I, I didn't at the time, of course. Right. Um, that whole tan thing came up probably because of the podcast. You know, in, in, in Conrad, this was kind of early on in the podcast, so our conversations were much more contentious at the time than they are now. We just have fun, right? It's like we're sitting around a table having a beer, eating a, a hamburger with no lettuce and tomato and mayonnaise and bullshit. But, but back then, a lot of our conversations were a little bit stiff. And Conrad's like beating me up for the decision I made. And I had to try to explain why I made the decision I made with regard to Sting and Hogan. And part of that was Sting wasn't prepared. 
mentally, mostly mentally, mm. as well as physically. He hadn't put in any time. It was clear to me. He looked like me <laughs> as wow. opposed to looking like, you know, somebody that is a professional wrestler at that level. And the tan was one example. It's one small example, but it's the one that stuck. So I never busted his balls. You know, certainly I wouldn't have done that with Sting. I had a different relationship with Sting. I wouldn't need to say something that was disrespectful to him at the time, especially. But it came up as a conversation while I was trying to explain what I why I did what I did. So yeah, Sting and I have never talked about that, by the way. We've been together a couple times. And I think you know, when he's Steve's a funny kind of guy. When he's got something he wants to talk to you about, like he makes eye contact with you. And he doesn't break eye contact. He doesn't even blink. And then he gets this smile on his face. So he's staring at you and smiling, and you're going, huh. He's pissed off about something. He wants to talk about something. But we've not had that conversation yet. Next time I see him staring at me and smiling, I'm going to go to him, okay, let's get this over with. Let's get it over you with. You want to know why I pointed out the tan and have at it. Absolutely. Which, I mean, for me as a young wrestling fan that grew up primarily on the WWF, um, it was actually Sting versus the Great Muda in WCW when I was flipping channels and I saw that and I was like, oh, there's a whole new wrestling everything, you know, here and Sting, Sting. Oh, my gosh. Two guys with face pain, but Sting is just surfer, you know, surfer blonde Sting, Venice Beach, California. Uh, so where in terms of like the pantheons of, of wrestling. Do you think he's in your top 10, top 15? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm knocking on, uh, we'd, we'd skip over the top 10, move right, right. into the top five. I like, you that. know, it's funny though. Sting, Sting is not, a, you know, it's funny. You, you'll have a hard time finding anybody that's successful as a, as a professional wrestler who isn't really inherently good at self-promotion. Some people are really, really good at it. Um, but, but being a good self-promoter, whether you're on camera doing it to build, you know, interest in a match or storyline, or whether you're on the outside kind of marketing yourself as your character, you've got to, you've got to be pretty good at that. Sting is good at it. He just doesn't like it. He's he, You don't see him on social media much. I don't think I would shock anybody to suggest that. Perhaps, I don't know this for a fact, but I doubt that he's even posting his own stuff. He's probably got somebody doing that for him, yeah. you know, that he trusts. Um, but, and I, I don't, again, I don't know if that's true. I could be wrong. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing if he does. A lot of people do that. You just yeah. don't know. But um, he he's kind of a quiet loner. And I think that's one of the reasons why he just goes out there and keeps doing what he's been doing for the last 30 years and doing it at a very high level, but he doesn't put himself over, you know, he doesn't market himself. Well, that's uh, salt of the earth. And I, I, I dig that because there can be some inflated egos in the entertainment, but specifically wrestling, you know, um, Virgil tried to hit on my mom. Uh, fuck that guy. Did, um, I tell you, did I tell you, have, I, have you and I talked to you since I saw Virgil last? Yes, absolutely. On the after 83 weeks. But oh, the, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of dig Virgil because I'm not sure if this is all just a work or if he's really as goofy as he comes off. I don't know. But he was so happy when I saw him. 
he came up, he had a smile from ear to ear. He brought a gift for me, a really nice gift, a photograph. And uh, we just shot the shit. And he's just so, and I watched him because he was a couple tables down from me. I was watching him with the fans. Now, great, he didn't get a lot. You know, you know, it was like him, Scott Hall, and myself, and um, a couple of the ladies that were with us. And, you know, he didn't get a lot of traffic, but God, he had fun with those fans. And they had fun with him. It's like they're kind of buying into this version of Virgil that we see on social media. They're just having a blast with it. Oh, that meets us. Oh, that meets us. Yeah, he comes God. up with the weirdest shit. He just, it's funny though, right? It is. I mean, but again, it's a bit of drama. Did I tell you the Virgil story? Yeah, and I know oh, yeah. he hit on your mom. Yeah, and I yeah. probably feel different about him if he hit yeah. on me. But yeah. I'm just looking at the guy today. The guy yeah. today is pretty cool. There we go. Right. Okay. Uh, maybe he might get an olive branch from me on social media. Um, or I might be blocked. There's that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, NWA Badblood says, Adam is man. I, I'm not a 20-plus year veteran of the ring as such as you yourself. And I didn't create the NWO such as Eric. But I appreciate it nonetheless. Um, and Yasbeat says, hey, Adam, I just wanted to say hello, and I have a question for your guests. How did the idea come up of bringing Lucha Libre into WCW? Well, much like the conversation we were having about women's wrestling, and, you know, because there were a number of, you know, really amazingly talented women wrestlers in Japan. There just wasn't as many here in the States. Yeah. So at, at that time, I, I wanted to, as I was suggesting earlier, make WCW and Nitro in particular feel like a more important show than our competition. Right. Again, how can I be different than them and, and at the same time make ourselves feel more important? And I firmly believe that bringing Japanese talent over, bringing talent over from the UK, bringing talent in from Mexico and giving us a more international composition as opposed to not um, that was the reason for it. And, 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 and truthfully, I had just begun hearing about Lucha Libre and the success it was becoming in Southern California in the, I'd say, 93, 94 era is when mm -hmm. it first started landing on my radar. So I'm thinking, oh, oh wow, I mean, this, this would fit nicely. It checked all the boxes that I had at that time. I like it. I mean, I love I love all types of wrestling, and but my first exposure to both strong style, uh, you know, uh, by way of, uh, I mean, a lot of people that you brought over, you know, uh, the uh, Ultimate Dragon, flanked by Sonny Ono, right? But then also the first time I saw Lucha Libre was on WCW TV. So thank you for kind of expanding my horizons and expectations of what I thought for wrestling would and should be. That was cool. Thank you. Yes. Speaking of Sonny Ono, NWA Bad Blood says, Sonny Ono told him some funny stories about your trip to North Korea. Do you have any stories? And I know we went over this in the uh, the uh, kind of the reprieve of the uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode, but I mean, any stories? I mean, nothing that's funny. You know, I, I have to say one of the most profound experiences I had uh, while I was in the business it, it, profound in its own unique way, really, was when I got up one morning, you've probably heard the story, but I got up one morning, back in back in 95 when we went to North Korea, I was running a lot. I love running. I was, I've always loved to run. 
and I was I was in a pretty good groove. So I wanted to keep running while I was in Korea. And it's also a good way to keep your body clock kind of adjusted. Uh, you can kind of control when you get tired or not. So I, I got up one morning about six o'clock in the morning. It was still dark out. Got dressed and walked out of my hotel and went through a jog through the streets of downtown Pyongyang, North Korea. Oh, by the way, we were constantly shadowed by the North Korean government's version of the CIA or Secret Service while we were there. My, they call them attachés. My attaché uh, was, was a woman, very nice, uh, well, professional. Uh, but she had left. She thought, you know, she was going to come back probably at 8 o'clock in the morning, right, follow me around for the rest of the day. But I left. I'm sure she didn't think that I'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning when it was still dark and decide to go for a jog in downtown Pyongyang. Probably never occurred to her, but it did to me. So I did. And I had on a pair of red sweatpants and a yellow shirt or a bright green shirt, whatever it was. Vice versa. Now, I'm 5'10", 5'10 and a half. At that time, I weighed about a buck 80. So I just decided to go running. I'm running through downtown Pyongyang. And I, at that time, I was running about six or seven miles a day. So about halfway through, the sun starts coming up. And by the way, there's nobody on the street. Nobody. No birds, nothing. No birds, no squirrels, because they eat all that shit, because this country's been starving forever. So you don't find any, you know, cute little bunnies running around. They got eaten a long time ago. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm realizing how weird it feels to be in a city that's as big as Pyongyang, right downtown, and not seeing a living thing. It was like going for a jog on the set of a movie. It's weird. Now, the sun's coming up. All of a sudden, the city starts coming to life. And the first thing I see is people just pouring into the sidewalks, and they're all wearing, mostly, I'd say 90% of them were men. And they're all wearing either dark, blue or black suit with a white shirt, a blue or black tie. They all look like business people, but they're not. A lot of them were like factory workers, but you wore your suit on the way to work, and when you got to work, you put on your working clothes. And when you got done working, you took off your working uniform, put on your suit, and walked home. It gives the appearance of a, of a wealthy society when, in fact, they're starving to death. It's a really weird thing. Anyway, I, I digress. So as it's getting lighter and lighter, now little kids are coming out, right? And by the time I got pretty close to my hotel, the kids were out on the street, and you'd see 8, 10, 15 kids on the street corner all dressed in their school uniforms, holding, holding up a flag of, of the dear leader, as they're referred to in North Korea. And it was a weird experience. And now it's getting really crowded. And I'm running down the street, and I look up ahead of me, and those people in the suits and shit, they parted. It was like the Red Sea thing. They just, like, hugging the wall. They were terrified of me because they had never seen a Westerner in real life. They only seen them in movie clips or news clips, documentaries, and propaganda and shit. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, I was the evil American that they've all been taught to hate since the first time they stepped into their government school system and are indoctrinated with, with propaganda. To me, I was the living devil to these people. That left such a 
as I said, profound impression on me. I'll never forget it. It's, in many respects, it's kind of like one of the things I'm most grateful for. Not, not the most, but I'm very grateful for it in a sense of it really opened my eyes to things that I didn't think existed anymore. Right. It's really it's bizarre. I can't really even explain it. But I mean, you, I've never seen terror in someone's eyes. I've seen fear. I've seen anger. I've seen some fun stuff. But I've never seen terror. Mm. Terror's kind of freaky, bro. Ooh, I've got chills. I've got chills. Uh, not to make light of it, but that that you know, dressing to work and you know what have you. That kind of seems eerily reminiscent of a WWE conduct policy where everybody had to show up in suits. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I hated that. By the way, oh, by the way, in my case. Um, well, everybody's. I had to wear a suit on a plane oh. or a sport coat. I, mean, I don't think I had to have a tie, but my dress code was I had to wear a sport coat. And if you're wearing a sport coat, you're going to wear dress shoes. I mean, to get dressed up to fly for five and a half hours on a plane, was, uh, uh, I hate this. But I did it. I was a good soldier. Well, we again, we thank you for your service. That's amazing. <laughs> um, now, uh, and Marie Shadows actually uh, worked for W. Uh, I mean, the WWE Network for the most enigmatic three months that I've ever heard of any company anywhere, and what have you. So uh, she also, I thank her too for kind of uh, you know taking one for the team to to handle the Titans at Titan Towers. Yeah, I can't. It's it's a it's a rough gig. It's a rough gig, absolutely. Now, uh, keeping it light, but Ronnie Roberts says uh, I've been watching wrestling for over thirty years, and when WCW was around, it was my favorite to watch, especially when the NWO took off. Now, Eric, is there somebody that you wish you could have signed to WCW that wouldn't sign with you? No, nope, not one person. Um... It was really the opposite. It was there's so many people that wanted to come to WCW for about a year and a half, two year stretch, that it, it was more of a question of, you know, I may be interested in somebody, but we just can't bring any more people on because you can't utilize them the way they want to be utilized. And then so you bring in a reasonably high profile piece of talent, and because they're available, you bring them on, and then they sit around for a couple months. And nothing's happening, and it creates other problems. So we had too many people wanting to come over. Yeah, no, uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. It again is reminiscent of some other company right now. I don't know. Well, and I know you're referring to AEW, and I met, I've, I've said this. You know, I, I, I think going out and acquiring some of the best talent in the world is right. absolutely a smart move. You know. Um, the thing you'd have, it's not a downside, but the thing you have to be aware of is those people are going to want some TV time and meaningful TV time. They want to, they're going to want to be in meaningful stories. You know, they're going to want to play out in front of a crowd. That's why they're performers. That's what they're driven. They want to get out there and do their thing. They want to get on that stage and connect with that audience or learn how to if they don't already know. And you just need to be aware that, you know, you, you got to be careful. It's like inventory. You know, you got to control your inventory, whether you're making widgets in a factory or whether you're producing wrestling. In the case of wrestling, these are performers. These are human beings. These are people with passion and, and 
Some of them have patience, some of them don't. And you just need to be sure you don't stack too many of those people up because it'll create a vibe. And, and that vibe is very contagious. So that's what I mean by managing it. No, absolutely. And I, I, I agree. That's the catch 22 of, you know, people saying, Oh, you're hiring X WWE talent or ring of honor talent, whatever. But I mean, if these are world-class competitors and, and for us, there was a generation of talent that almost missed the rock and, and Austin when they left to Hollywood and, you know, took the ball, went home respectively. And they didn't get the tutelage of, you know, a lot of veterans. Now you have AEW that are gearing up to kind of groom their own stars. But then also they have, imagine if you're a Darby Allen, you can go to Sting, you know, Dean Malenko, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, like, and get kind of like new eyes on a particular situation. So, man, right on, right on. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, oh, I'm so, sorry, I thought that was a statement, not a question. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Jay Shell says, uh, let's do it with the uh, the burger pizza flag tattoo t shirt. Uh, Pro Wrestling Tees would love it. So, there we go. McMack, I know you're listening. You need to you need to hit me with a couple of tweets on that, and uh, let's see if we can make this happen. I can see the logo in my head. Okay. Well, did you see the edit that McMack made of you? I've seen a couple. Okay. Well, I don't was... respond. To, I don't respond to them because I don't want to encourage bad behavior. <laughs> yeah. So there's. I mean, there's that. But uh, no, I think it could be an awesome design. But in terms of. Uh, you know, Micmac's edit, it was a bunch of us. It was George Ramosa in a like an 80s rock, you know, kind of ensemble. Then it was me doing me stuff and Christy. But there would be alternating shots of you looking like, in some shots, you look like Santa Claus because you had long hair and the whole beard. Yeah. Deal. And then Kenny Rogers. So there you go. No, I, I haven't seen that one yet, but Mick, Mick is very uh, artistic, and I'll, I'll take a look at that. I did see the one that he posted the other day of me with really long hair, mm -hmm. uh, big old scraggly beard. I kind of like look like a cross between – who was the guy that played the dude? Oh, yes, uh, Bridges, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I looked a little – it was a cross between Jeff Bridges and Forrest Gump. Um, and I <laughs> – you know, when he was in his running – you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did show that to my wife, and I jokingly said, "Hey, I, you know this? I'm not. I don't know if this is that. This might be a good idea. This could be a good look because I like to change my look up every once in a while." And she looked at me and said, "Not if you ever want to have sex with me again." <laughs> yeah, um, nah, I'm just kidding, honey. I'm just kidding. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wash. I'm just saying. Uh, speaking of estuaries and stuff like that, Marcos Martinez says, "Greetings, Adam. Can Eric tell us about fly fishing? I've never been. Uh, and do you have any tips?" I, I don't really. My only tip would would be if you've never been fly fishing before and you have an interest in it, find somebody who's really good at it. If you live in an area where there's a trout fishing guide service, for example, and then, you know trout fishing isn't available everywhere. You know, some states it's easy, you have easier access than others. But whatever kind of fly fishing you want to do, whether it's trout fishing or, or even on a lake, go find somebody that's really good at it. Because I think fly fishing is a little bit like golf mm -hmm. in that it's 
it's body positioning, it's the way you hold your wrists the right way versus the wrong way. It's the rhythm that you need to have. That's the technical part of it. And then the, the actual fishing part of it is learning, you know, the types of flies that you should be using given the types of conditions that you're in or the type of time of year it is. Um, where, you know, what kind of a flow are you looking for if you're river fishing or what kind of depths are you looking for if you're in a lake? It's just a lot of nuance and stuff to learn. And you're not going to pick it up, you know, learning it on the job, so to speak. So invest a couple hundred bucks, find a really good coach to take you out just once or twice. That's all you need is once or twice. And then build upon that. Read about it and watch videos. That's my tip. There you go. I like it. I like it. Um, it's a weird one, but uh, Rocky Nelson says, what is the scariest thing a fan has ever done to you? You know, I, I mean, I had a Seth Rollins type incident. Um, I turned out a lot better than his did, though. <laughs> I saw the guy coming. I didn't do a thing. I never laid a hand out. I saw him coming. He jumped at me. I literally, it was like in a scene in a movie. I just ducked down. He went right over the top of me. And I think it was Scott Norton and a half of other half a dozen other guys got a hold of him. I never touched him. I literally, unless he touched my back as he was getting flipped over me. And it wasn't like I didn't do anything. It wasn't like any kind of a defensive maneuver. I just ducked. He went right over the time top of me because the, the timing was right. He was in midair as I was ducking. And then I think there's video of it out there somewhere. I've seen it recently on the WWE Network. But Scott Norton got a hold of him first. Can you imagine that? Ooh, <laughs> Scott Norton? Hell no. I'd rather play across the 405 in traffic. Like, that's no. I don't want to. No. Scott Norton, no. 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 Yeah. And it, of course, at that time, it's like, ooh, open season. Mm -hmm. This is like free for all Friday. Yay. Let's get them, guys. <laughs> but I, 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 he, I don't think he laid a hand on me or body part on me. That's the only time. You know, the other one that happened, I guess it didn't happen to me necessarily, but I was making an entrance. We're somewhere in New York, I think, or New Jersey. I think we're in New Jersey. And this is NWO's hot. It was probably late 97 or so, maybe early 98. People are still really amped up about it. Probably 97. And I remember the video. It might have been Continental arena it was a big big arena and we have our nwo entrance it was just hulk and i at the time i come out and i'm doing the you know thing mm -hmm. and i turn around and i'm doing this thing and i turned around again i did this thing and as i'm standing there i see this thing coming at me from my peripheral vision from way up here and we had we had just stopped and i looked up and it was a full bottle of beer still had the cap on it and it came from way up high. So it had some steam on it. And it went right by my face, maybe a foot, foot and a half in front of me, and then splashed on the concrete floor. And I thought to myself, you know what? This shit's getting a little dangerous out here. Yeah. If that would have hit either Hulk or I in the head, or worse, you know, a fan, yeah. you know, somebody in the crew, I would have felt horrible about that. And that's, that's the scariest kind of physical thing that ever happened that makes i mean that makes sense and uh, as somebody that was on the board and you know had a how to say or more than a say in ww wcw's dealings that's 
that's kind of uh, a horrid situation because again, if a crew gets hurt, there's probably going to be a lawsuit or some, you know, time off the road at the very least. And that person is just not in, in, in good shape. So that's, that's never fun. Yeah, no, it was, it was scary. I wasn't, it was not so much the, I wasn't worried about the, I mean, litigation would have happened had somebody gotten hit and hurt as it should have. Right. Absolutely. But um, just the idea that it could happen. Because up to that point, you know, people throw garbage. I got hit with, you know, the worst one I ever got hit with was tobacco spit. I'm up in the ring. I'm in the middle of a promo. But by that time, when people start throwing garbage in the ring, secretly in my mind, I'm counting money, right? We got so much heat. This is great. But I'm I'm in the ring with somebody, and I get hit in the head, right, like on this part of my head, almost in the face, but still up in my hair. And – I just, I was, you know, Coke, whatever, Sprite, whatever. And, and then after about, I don't know, 20 seconds, I'm going, oh, somebody hit me. They were sitting there watching wrestling, spitting their chew in a styrofoam cup and threw it and hit me in the head with it. Freaking nasty. Yeah. Oh, oh. And I've heard, I've heard some, um, uh, you know, stories of Mexico, of people throwing, like, literally pissing in, like, yeah. you know, cups and just throwing it and what have you, which... Yeah, I, 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 take, I take a hard pass on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Which, uh, I mean, keeping with the NWO, uh, Tyler Van Kill says, favorite moment from the NWA days? I don't you know, not a moment specifically, but in a period of time. I think late 96... Couple of months after we, you know, created the NWO, everything changed so quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a great way. That I didn't appreciate it as much at the time as I wished I would have, because at the time, you know, you're doing it, you're in the middle of it, kind of on a treadmill, you're living day to day and week to week, and at least for me, when I'm living like that and on that kind of a roll. Yeah, taking time to appreciate things isn't high on the list, right? You're just doing it. But man, that was a fun time. That that I would say 30 or 60 days after we launched the NWL, that's because it was also new. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, holy shit, this is really working great. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I had ever experienced success in wrestling. You know, when I broke into wrestling for Vergani and AWA. The AWA was on its way down. They they were already down. They were the right. patient that you know. The doctor says you might want to consider you know pulling that plug because there's no way the patient's going to get any better, and you're kind of doing it in a way. That was AWA when I got hired, and then I went to WCW. And WCW wasn't successful when I got hired. Right. So I had never really experienced what anybody would consider success in the business until I launched Nitro. And it started before the NWO. It started in 95. We were competitive with WWE immediately. And so there was a sense of, okay, well, at least we're not embarrassing ourselves every week. But, man, right after NWO hit, those first two, three, four months were really exciting because that was, like, the first time I had ever experienced success in wrestling. Well, kudos. And, and now, you know, you've got probably, you know, 
kids in elementary school now that are wearing NWO shirts and you know who you are. And heck, I mean, even John Cena in the uh, the COVID era WrestleMania, he rocks a NWO shirt. I mean, did you dig that? Yeah, I did. Bruce Pritchard called me because, you know, Bruce knows me pretty well. He said, he, he texted me, he didn't call me. He said, hey, dude, you got to watch WrestleMania. So I think there's something there you're going to like. I was like, Bruce, I don't know, man. I got friends coming over. I got this going on. Eric, watch WrestleMania. Okay, I'm going to watch WrestleMania. I could tell that time he was telling me to watch it. And I did. It was great. The whole scene was great. Everything that went, everything associated with that moment, I thought was executed flawlessly. No, absolutely. And um, that was one of the last times that we saw you know, a, a great in John Cena, you know, uh, in the ring, in the WWE before he makes his ascension to Hollywood, which he's doing great now. So uh, yes, it's yes. cool that, yeah, so it's cool that he, you know, one of the lasting impressions or the last impressions that he made on the WWE universe was uh, rocking an NWO shirt. I had to get the kid over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think so. I, I agree. I agree. Um, now, I have a couple of questions because I'm a huge Misfits fan, right? And dancing and and a huge Kiss fan. And they are huge wrestling fans, right? The bands and what have you. Um, whose idea was to bring in the Misfits to work with Vampiro or, you know, Kiss to kind of work with uh, Dale Torborg or the Kiss Demon? Kiss was my idea. Um, that one was mine. But there was a, a there was an effort to try to find different ways of tying in to pop culture mm-hmm. within our demo. So you know we're eighteen to thirty four, eighteen to forty nine year old males was our demo, right? But I wanted to attract audiences in those respective demos that weren't necessarily wrestling fans. I want that's how you convert people, right? Mm-hmm. You either show up every Sunday and you preach to your choir or you find a way to reach out to the community and build a bigger congregation. We were preaching quite well to our choir, but I wanted to expand it. I wanted it to be a more diverse audience as opposed to just wrestling fans. So there was obviously Kiss, Misfits, as you you pointed out, uh, Insane Clown Posse, uh, Master P. Right. There was a lot of different, and even those are diverse kind of segments of those demos, right? Um, So that's where it started from. As far as the Misfits, I don't know who who identified Misfits to be the correct, you know, fit there. That I don't remember. And I only remember Kiss because I initiated it. Yeah, there we go. Were were you a Kiss fan or are you a Kiss fan? No, I wasn't at all. Really? Oh, when Kiss was at its peak, I was I was more of a classic rock. Well, at the time, it wasn't called classic rock, but well, I guess it was. Um, but I, I was, you know, I was more of the. I, I kind of have three eras of music in my life. Growing up as a kid, it was all Motown, mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, Temptations, Gladys Knight and the Pips. That was the music of my childhood. When I moved from Detroit, and part of this is as you, as you get older, your taste changes too. But by the time I got to Pittsburgh, now I'm in my, I think I turned 13 in Pittsburgh. 
I'm in Pittsburgh for a couple of years, and now I'm more of a classic rock guy. Got out of Pittsburgh, and I spent a little time in the country genre. And for whatever reason, I just like country music for, for a long stretch. Yeah. And now I'm kind of all over the map. There was a period of my time where I was really into classical music, which I, I don't even know why. Well, I do know why. I, I, used, to, I used to have my own airplane, and I would fly cross-country a lot. I love flying. And I had a stereo in my plane. So once you get up there high enough and you're on a long stretch, <clears throat> you're not anywhere near your landing destination, I would, like, turn on the music and set up my autopilot so the plane's basically flying itself. I'd hit my stereo, and I was piping in classical music in my headsets while I'm cruising above the clouds. And it was a really cool vibe. It just put me in a different state of mind altogether. Uh, not necessarily relaxing, but calming. And it was just, it was a beautiful experience. And, I, and so I started listening to the classical music every time I flew. Um, so yeah, I think I said this to you before. If anybody finds my playlist, they're going to study it. They're going to, what kind of person would do this? Mm -hmm. This is weird. <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason to any of this. Which, what's in there now? Everything. Everything that I just described to you. I still, I still have a pretty solid Motown playlist. And I'm talking about Motown from late 50s throughout the 60s. I started getting out of Motown about the 70s because it, it changed. There was a period of time when even, even in Motown, um, he started getting a little bit more of the electric vibe mm -hmm. as opposed to a traditional soul vibe. Yeah. You know, it's like, a, what was it? It's a temptation song. Uh, Shaq. It was about a Shaq. It was basically a drug deal. Right. But it was really, they started, you know, interjecting, you know, kind of an electric you know, guitar vibe that had more of a poppy feeling. Um, so I started getting out of it a little bit then. And I come back to it because it's like food. It's like, you know, we all revert back to what we remember enjoying at a certain stage of our life. So, yeah, my, my playlist right now is every. There's all kinds of different music on it. I like Celtic music. Like if I'm in the gym, which happens occasionally, um, I, I got some rock and Celtic music that just motivates the shit out of me. Wow, okay. Either going to work out or take over a small community. <laughs> I made it work. It worked for the Irish, I'm just saying, you know. And uh, Cassidy giving us a little bit of context. He said, Vampire told us about the Misfits idea in the interview that we did with him. Um, and he says, uh, they were actually playing across town. And uh, he went over and asked if they would come over. So I love that. I, 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 I'm sure if that's a story, it's true, which I, I think that's cool as shit, right? Yeah. That's absolutely. when wrestling's fun. It's spontaneous, improv. I, you know, that's what's missing for in wrestling. A lot of it to me is just everything is so cookie cutter. Cookie. This is cookie cutter. Yeah, that's not, that's not no, absolutely. And uh, our friend Josh Eternal says, "Yes, more Bischoff. I'm a proud Bischoffian." Which is that what you would call your fans, the Bischoffians? Huh? I haven't yet, but I kind of dig it, Josh. Yeah, I'm kind of digging it. Oh, we got what's that? That's like two uh, pro wrestling T-shirts exclusives that we got on this show, right? Yeah, we're just we're we're, we're capitalists here. We're creating opportunity and wealth. I love that. 
Absolutely. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I dig it. Uh, Josh actually has a question and he's like, I, uh, Eric, I have always noticed a big difference between your promos in WCW and your WWE promos. Your WCW promos had a slow burn feel while your WWE ones were very fast paced. So uh, did you make the decision to speed up your promos in the WWE? No, I mean, the difference, and that's just that's a really good observation because it's absolutely true. When I was in WWE, I was calling the shots. I could deliver my promo. If it, if it was designed to go two minutes, but it was moving towards two and a half, but if it was feeling good, I'd go with it. Mm-hmm. Who's going to fire me, right? So, um, so I had the ability to to flow with it a little bit differently i could i could take my time to react to the audience and josh that's such a good question because it sets up a perfectly good kind of critique example i i for the most part um there's a handful of people in wwe that could do a great promo actually there's probably a lot more people that could do a great promo we just never get to see it because those promos are so scripted not necessarily in the talent's voice all the time, but in the writer's voice or in Vince's voice. Therefore, they don't feel natural. And there's a time limit on it. You know, if, if, if When you're in WWE, if you're walking out the door and you're told you got two minutes for this promo, you better not come in at two minutes and 45 seconds or you're going to have heat. Because that show is timed. <clears throat> It's a live show and it's time. Your extra 35 or 45 seconds now has to come out of a match. Okay, where does it come out? How do we communicate that to the talent? You know, it's a chain reaction. But at WWE, we didn't have that. We were more improvisational. And we had to adjust in other ways. We had to shorten matches up. Sometimes we'd eliminate something. We'd drop an interview here because it really wasn't that important to the show, but that's a really good promo. You're kind of shifting on the fly as you're – as you're flying. Um, that was redundant, but that's the difference. In WWE, the words are written for you, and you have a lot of time, and you're a complete idiot if you take more than that. And that's the difference. And, and it comes off, people feel it at home. The difference between something that feels real or organic and something that feels overly scripted. No, 100%. Um, and uh, check out the Slim Dusty song called Duncan and Pub with No Beer. Uh, that's his recommendation. Okay. That's a crazy thought. I'm not sure I'll listen to the song just because it's a scary thought. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, you haven't heard the Blood Pound Gang. It's, that, there's a whole genre of like, uh, they have a song called uh, Foxtrot Unicorn Charlie Kilo. If you get, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's all references. I used to be a pilot. Everybody speaks in that kind of military alphabet speak. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a fun one. And um, it, one of the other differences, right? Uh, one of the things that I loved about WCW is how the rings sounded. And I actually miss that. Miss that. So, I mean, was that, do you know, or uh, were you involved with, you know, the audio presentation, what we heard at home? To some degree, yes. Um, I don't recall ever having a conversation with anybody about the sound of the ring um, because there was nothing wrong with the sound of the ring. It wasn't something that we felt needed to be addressed. And I, but I think the reason that it, you noticed that had a lot more to do with the ring construction mm-hmm. than it had to do with any effort to 
modulate the sound in, in the ring um, or control that. Our rings were just built differently, and therefore they had a different sound to them. But I, I don't recall ever. You know, I've, I had input like in music mix and levels, and you know, sometimes we modify the crowd reactions yeah. to things. You know, even in, you know, sometimes we want the crowd to sound bigger, and it's you know, very very incremental. It becomes too noticeable. But um, or if they're chanting something, we didn't necessarily want to be on live television, you know, that type of thing. But in terms of the ambiance, I don't recall ever having any of those conversations. No, it's uh, for me just the presentation. It was like WCW, where the big boys play, and that that promo of the you know the WCW and a guy crushing with his fist and what have you, and then the sound of the ring. To me, I was like, oh, these are the bad motherfuckers here. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back and try to notice that, you know, because I've always. I think you know the WCW ring had more gift to it. You know, WC or the WWE ring was kind of is known for being kind of a stiff ring. Yeah, hurt more. <laughs> and our rings were a little smaller too, but that wouldn't have affected the sound. Ours were eighteen by eighteen. WWE's were twenty by twenty. Twenty twenty bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Josh says, uh, Eric, what indie wrestler who never made it to the WWE or WCW would you say that you learned from the most? Do you have one? No, because I never really followed the indie thing until the last few years. Mm -hmm. Now I do it just because I like I like the vibe of it. Not not sometimes I don't. I mean, there's some really horrible shit out there, <laughs> but. Some of it, you know, I, I get the same vibe you know, when I'm backstage because they're all young people. They're all they're all aspirational. They're all aspiring to take that next step, and it's the newness of it, and the it's like a newfound love, right? It's 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 different. Um, and I I, di I dig being around that vibe. It reminds me of you know when I was in the AWA because it was small and intimate. And, not very fancy, mm -hmm. but there's a certain charm to that too. Oh yeah, which what indies are you watching right now? Oh, I haven't been to an indie show in a couple of years. Well, since pre-COVID. Okay. I do a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but I do several times a year. I'll be invited to make an appearance at an indie event, and uh, whoever that may be. That have reached out to me. I'll, those are the those. It's not like I'm following people, but I'm making appearances at different indie shows around the country, and some of them, like I said, I was, you know, less than impressed with, but some of them I've been overly impressed with. So it's always fun just go out and explore. It's kind of like uh, a pub crawl. <laughs> you just take a taste here and move on and hit the next spot down the road. Absolutely, and. Uh... Uh, Josh Eternal says, and thanks, Eric. Uh, hashtag Bischoffians unite. Bischoffians unite. I had to do it justice. All right. <laughs> now, uh, last but not least, greatest uh, rib that you have seen or heard about. It, it could either be you or somebody else. We could name the. We could have the uh, the parties remain nameless, but best rib that you've heard or seen. I don't have one. Ooh. I don't have one. It's I, I okay. Let me just lay this out here. All right, this is like self discovery. Okay, I can never remember a joke. Oh, 
Okay. Somebody can tell me a joke that'll make me double over laughing. Borderline losing control of my bodily functions. And I'll forget it within an hour. Why is that? I think it's because you're handling a lot of shit. I don't know, man, but it's like I've heard so many funny ribs over the years. So many of them, hundreds of them. And I double over and I laugh, but I don't remember them. I can't even lie about I don't even remember them enough to kind of add some of my own detail and flavor. I just don't remember them. The same way I don't remember jokes, no matter how funny they are. I don't know why that is. Self-preservation. Maybe maybe deep down inside, I know if I start ribbing people, they're going to rib me back and I'd rather not deal with it. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I don't have one. I'm sure there are funny ones out there. There's a lot of gross ones out there. We've all heard those. I don't even like, I don't even like talking about those. But I like, you know, a real, real funny rib that's, you know, under the right situations, th those are fun. They can be team-building moments as long yeah. as they don't go too far. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, Yeah. I, it, once you start shaving off people's eyebrows and what have you, that's it's not cool. And also, for over 83 weeks, you were a president of a company. You were the boss. So you go ahead and rib you. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, nobody ever did. And I can say that now because, you know, back then, if I would have come out and said like at 98 or 99, you know, I'm the president of this company, nobody's going to rip me. Guess what? Yeah. Guess and, what? Yeah. <laughs> so. Which Ju Justin Vick says, uh, don't feel bad, Eric. I forget movie spoilers and song lyrics and names of my family even. So don't feel bad. Yeah. And now I just blame it on old age. So it's, I, I don't feel bad about it. It's just, I play mine on COVID. It, it helps me a bit. So, yay. There you go. But, Eric, you have been great. You guys here have been awesome. Thank you guys for doing this. Thank you for joining us. And uh, to get more of Eric, uh, adfreeshows.com is where you go to get everything. All the social medias are right down uh, below in the description. So I linked it. I, I kind of learned a thing or two from uh, one Steve Kaufman. So, bam. He's a wizard. Yes, he is. He, he might even have a hat to boot. So there you go. But uh, thank you guys for joining us. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and like, share, and subscribe to the According to Woods podcast on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and even Twitter. Um, Eric, you're subscribed, right? Yes. Yes. I'm going to subscribe. Dang right. So go ahead and be like the one and only legendary Eric Bischoff and subscribe to the According to Woods podcast. But if you don't believe me or Eric Bischoff, and I don't know why he wouldn't, here's Pro Wrestler Zeta Zang. Hey, this is Ada